Amen. You can be seated. So glad you're here today to study. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18. I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn a Bible there. Uh, I think it's 837, 838 in the Bibles in the chairs. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We'd encourage you to take it, read it, let the Word of God do its work in you. Uh, Version Live, we use that event. Uh, there's a live event out there, and there's going to be a number of Bible verses I'm going to reference, and I would encourage you to, uh, to, to follow along there or... I think the sermon goes out on Tuesdays. Those notes will be available after or when it goes out. So I, the reason I'm saying that we're going to hit a lot of passages. There's going to be a lot of information today. And I don't think um, if, 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 if it's true that you'll only remember 30% of what I say, there's a lot in the 70% that you're going to forget that I want you to be able to go home and think on and let it, let it just rest on you. So, so I want you to know that those are available. But... As we've studied these last few weeks, as we've been building towards this point that we're at today, we've been asking a question, how do I inherit eternal life? It's a question we've asked several times now, uh, and, and, and we came up with an answer that's very basic, and it's very difficult for us to believe because it's so basic. It's so counterintuitive to our human nature. And the answer is this. We receive eternal life as a gift from God through faith in Jesus and repentance toward Jesus we, we receive it as a gift. It comes to us free of charge to us. All we can do is trust him like we believe in Jesus. All we can do is turn from the world that's behind us and, and no longer trust in that, no longer trust in our own plans, no longer trust in our own efforts, and trust in his alone. So we, we repent, we turn toward him, and we trust in him. And that's all we can do. That's a very difficult lesson for us to, to, to learn. It's a very difficult lesson for us to really believe, but the, the, the reality is, is this what Jesus has been teaching? This is what he's been pressing home over and over in these passages that we have been studying. If you go back into Luke 18, it, it, it just was shocking to them. It's so shocking to them, it, it, it's often referred to today as the great reversal. Like the human, the, the, the human nature of the Jewish culture, I guess would be a better way to say this, the Jewish culture of that day thought if I do the right things, if I live good enough, I get heaven. Like good people go to heaven and bad people don't. That was kind of the, the frame. Well, that's not really a lot different than what we live in today. That's where they were at. And, and, they, and they established, here's, here's the difficulty for them. They established that view. They established that set of beliefs off of all of the scriptures that God had, had been speaking through the prophets and writing through, through uh, his people uh, really since the, the beginning of his interacting with people. I mean, you go all the way back to Genesis, and they were trying to build this thought, this, this, this perspective out of the Scripture. So when Jesus comes to them and begins to teach something different, it was shocking. So, for example, you go back to chapter 18, verses 9 through, uh, uh, 9 through 14, where we were at just about three weeks ago. And Jesus is teaching on a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee, who everyone would have said is saved, and the tax collector, everyone would have said, no, that person, that guy, he deserves what he gets. Jesus flips it on him. The tax collector goes home justified. The tax collector goes home righteous in God's sight. And the Pharisee goes home humiliated. And then the very next passage, and that's shocking to them. The very next passage, again, very shocking to them. When he says to them that you must, to, to receive eternal life, to receive the kingdom of God, you must come to him like a child, one who is dependent and defenseless and powerless. That, 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 that to come to him in any other way is to keep yourself out of the kingdom. And they were shocked by this. And when in the very next passage, a, a teacher, or, or, I'm sorry, a rich ruler walks up to Jesus and begins to interact with Jesus and ask, how can I have eternal life? How can I inherit the kingdom of God? How can I be saved? All three of those phrases are essentially the same question. When he enters into that conversation, they were shocked. The people watching, the people listening were shocked. When Jesus pointed out that his obedience wasn't enough, that his heart was still enslaved, entrenched to idolatry, a love of money greater than a love of God, no trusting in and really no understanding how desperately he needed to be saved. Again, they were shocked. In fact, they were so shocked, and you can see this in verse 26, they were so shocked that they come to this place where hearing Jesus' words, and they're like, well, who then can be saved? 
Who, who, who is able to be saved? If this guy, this rich ruler who we would all say deserves salvation, this rich ruler who in our perspective has, has done everything right and, and ultimately he's rich, so God must be blessing him. He's a ruler, so God must be, have favor on him. This guy who would be the model in their society, the model citizen, if he can't be saved, if he's not saved, who can then be saved? I mean, we can ask our how question a little different. How, how do I inherit eternal life? Kind of we're looking for a, a how-to list. We don't get a how-to list. We get a receive. Receive it as a gift. Trust in Jesus. Receive it as a gift. But how is a, 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 a great question. Like how is it possible? How can anyone be saved if it's true? I mean, if Jesus is, is, is bringing to, to bear, bringing to light that, that anyone who deserves or who believes they deserve salvation can't be saved, but anyone who confesses they don't deserve it and they trust in his mercy can be saved, if Jesus is bringing to bear the, the, the reality that, that people who, who um, would, would stand up and have all the moral, uh, the moral capacity and all the good deeds behind them, aren't saved, aren't necessarily saved by their good works, but the vilest of sinners can be, how is it possible? How is it possible that God can save vile sinners? And just so you know, tax collectors in that day were vile sinners. Children may not have been viewed as vile sinners, but they were incompetent. They were incapable. They had no capability to save themselves. In fact, they weren't even bringing themselves to Jesus. They were being brought by their parents. How can anyone be saved? How is it possible that God would save vile sinners like tax collectors, but not save rich rulers who have obeyed all their life? How is it possible that anyone can be saved? Well, in verse 27, Jesus gives us a very simple answer. What is impossible with man is possible with God. We can't do it, but he can. And see, so we, we know this. We know, we know that anything that is given as a gift comes at a cost, right? Like you've never bought something and given it away as a gift and thought that person who received it free, uh, like you never thought that gift was free. You always know, and there's a cost associated. And the reality is that we know that, that because gifts aren't free, that we recognize that there's something going on here. There's got to be more to this. If Jesus is saying we must receive it as a gift, there's got to be a cost. And in our nature, we're always trying to pay that cost. We're always trying to make up for that cost. We're always trying to figure out a way. But how can it be possible if we can't be enough, if we can't do enough good, if we can't be good enough? Well, I appreciate the passage we're about to study. Because in it, Jesus is going to show us the receipt for the gift that he bought. He's going to let us see just what the cost was. He's going to let us see the cost of making possible the impossible. He's going to help us see how anyone can be saved. So let's read it, and then we'll work our way through it. It says in chapter 18, verse 31, Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. So here, just, just to start off, I just want you to see the, the change in audience and, and really how Jesus begins to make a, a statement in private to these 12 apostles, to the 12 people that he had called out from among the masses. He calls 12 and says, you're going to be my apostles. You're going to be the leaders of my mission. You're going to take responsibility and you're going to exercise authority. You're going to be the ones. And he takes those 12 aside. Now, if you think back to what we've been working through, you can see over and over how, how Jesus has been speaking in front of lots of people and he slows down and he talks to the Pharisees specifically. Now, everybody can hear. Everybody can know what's going on, but he's speaking to the Pharisees. Then he turns and he speaks to his disciples. Then he turns and he speaks to, to people who would, um, who would look down on others, who would, who would in their own pride and self-righteousness look down and, and, and think less of other people. He speaks 
specifically to these people among the crowd, but never privately. In this moment, after all that's been going on, all that Jesus has been teaching, he takes his disciples aside, he continues on his way to Jerusalem, and speaking to these 12 specifically, he tells them something that's vital. There's three pieces that we need to see. He, he mentions that, the, that the, what the prophets have been saying will be fulfilled. He talks about his death, and he talks about his resurrection. The reality is, what, we want, what I want you to see, what I want you to get, is that this is, has always been the plan. Realistically, there's not another way. What the Jews had come up with as they looked at the scriptures was a second way to get to eternal life. They had created a path all their own. But Jesus is saying, no, that's, this has always been the path. This has always been the process. In fact, let me, just, let me just start by showing you that this is not the first time that Jesus has talked about his death. In fact, the headers aren't necessarily inspired. Well, they're not inspired. It's not necessarily. They just aren't inspired. But if, you, if you're reading it in the ESV or maybe like the NASB, you maybe will have a header over this passage in your Bible that says, Jesus foretells his death a third time. This is not the first time Jesus has talked about his death to his apostles. Truth is, just so you know, it's not really even the third time. And it's the third time that's recorded by Luke. It's the third time that's recorded by Matthew and Mark in very specific, direct terms. But Luke, in, in addition to this time, Luke has given us not only three very clear, uh, uh, Jesus, three, three very clear times that Jesus has um, foretold his death, but he's given us three veiled, or, or several veiled references as well. In fact, all told, by the point we get to this place in Jesus' ministry, this is the seventh time that he's made reference to his death that he's told people, that he, he told his followers that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be the suffering Savior, that he's going to in some way uh, uh, suffer and die. And, and the reality is that we don't have time to go through every one of these passages, Luke 5.35, Luke 9.22, Luke 9.43-45, Luke 12.50, uh, Luke 13.32. And we don't, we don't have time to read all of those. I want you to jump back just to the most recent one because it's really a part of the context that we're studying Today, So you go back to Luke 17, 25. If you're following along in the Bible, you just go up to the next chapter, the previous chapter, and find verse 25. And it says, but first will the Son of Man be, or I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This is a veiled but pretty direct reference to the fact that he's going to go into Jerusalem and before he can complete and consummate his kingdom, he's got to suffer. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected. This is really a a reference to his death, a reference to his cross. And so he then goes through this whole teaching of how, not not, not just that he's establishing a kingdom, but how people enter it. And he comes to this place now and he separates out his disciples. and, And now he's not stopped talking about how his kingdom is established. This is an extension of it. There's something important for his disciples to hear. Because they're about to go up to Jerusalem, and if they don't understand that his kingdom is going to be established by his suffering, then they're going to suffer just at the sake, for the simple fact that he's going to suffer. Now, we know that they don't get it. It says right here, it was hidden from him, from them. They did not grasp what was said. But this is the reality. Jesus' kingdom is going to be established. Eternal life is going to be rooted in this fact. Jesus was not surprised that he was going to suffer. Jesus was not surprised that he was going to die. Jesus was not surprised that if anyone was going to have eternal life, it was going to be through his life and death. He'd always known it. Throughout all of his ministry, over and over, he told his people about it. But it just didn't start with Jesus. Like Jesus didn't show up on the scene and start telling people this. Actually, he makes reference here to the prophecies that have been being made about him all along. And he points out that he is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the one the prophets had been referring to. So maybe you've heard the statement, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. There's a saying that's it's, it's attributed to Augustine, and he did write something similar to that. He was referring 
to grace, but people have taken that concept. There's, there's something important you need to see, though. The, the, the reality is this, that, that there's, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is a beautiful congruency. There, I mean, there's, there's, there's a way that they work together. In fact, at this point in the history of redemption, if you, if you live only in the New Testament, which, I, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in the New Testament, so I don't want to take away from that, right? There's a lot of good things there. But if you only ever live and study in the New Testament, you, you miss so many good things that God has always been doing since the very moment he brought things into being. But then there's those religions who would just deny that the New Testament is Scripture and they'd only live in the, in the Old Testament, and, and so they're going to miss things. But, but here we are at this point in the history of redemption where we can, standing with, 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 with clarity, standing with things being revealed, we can look into the New Testament and we can see the beauty of God's redemptive plan. And then we can look back into the Old Testament and we can see how that's been being worked out all the way through history. Covenant after covenant after covenant, promise after promise after promise, God has been working his redemptive plan. And it's always been the same plan. So when Jesus comes to them and tells them again, hey, I'm the Messiah I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the anointed one from God that's been sent here to lead and save people. This isn't something new. In fact, if you follow Jesus' ministry, you'll see that this is exactly who the disciples thought he was. When Andrew first met him, Andrew goes, he's under the, Andrew's in the ministry of John the Baptist. He's being uh, led and taught by John the Baptist, called to repentance, probably baptized by John the Baptist. Andrew goes and introduces or goes and tells his brother Simon, who is later named Peter, he goes and tells his brother Simon about Jesus. And in John 141, he says this to, to Simon, or who we know as Peter. He says, we have found the Messiah. Like He had, an, he had a concept. He had a clue. He had, an, he had insight that, yes, this is the Messiah. We found him. We found the one anointed by God to lead and save his people. We found him. Come and meet him. And so, so Andrew brings his brother, excited to introduce him to the Messiah. This is who Jesus was introduced as before he'd even taken his first step, before he was being fed on his own, before he was like eating solid food. Really before he was even, even taken home for the first time, as he laid in that manger and as the angels declared he was born to the shepherds, they said in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, For unto you, this, unto you is born this day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. It's the same thing. This is who Jesus was presented as by the angels. This is who Jesus was seen to be the, by, by, the, by the disciples, the, these 12 apostles that he's now talking to. They understood him to be the, the Messiah. But they didn't fully comprehend what that meant for him. They didn't fully get what that meant for him. But Jesus wanted to say it to them. And so in a prophetic statement of his own, speaking the future to them in this moment, things that hadn't happened yet, he begins to tell them what's going to happen. And he does it referencing all the prophets, all that the prophets had written about the Son of Man. All the things that the prophets had been saying about the coming Messiah. And he says, look, the scriptures have been written so that they can show you me. He might think, oh, that's, I mean, come on, that's a bold statement. But it's not the only time he said it. It's not the only time he, he referenced it. Confronting the Jews in their use of the scripture. He says to them, John chapter 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So you, you know people that do this. Maybe you have even struggled with this. We read the Bible looking for that list of rules to follow to make us feel good about, this is how I got it, this is how I get it. When in reality, the scriptures are intended to point us to Jesus, to help us see him, to help us know him, to help us understand all that he's done on behalf of us. Not so that we can earn eternal life, but so that we can receive it from him. So that we can depend upon him, so that we can trust him, and that we can turn away from all that the world has to offer in faith toward him. 
the, the scriptures bear witness about him. And just so we get this, as he said that in John chapter 5, you, you recognize he's not talking about the New Testament at all. It hadn't even been written yet. The Old Testament was not about following rules and obeying laws. It was about the fact that God was working from the very beginning to bring redemption through Jesus. Jesus has always always been being revealed in the Scripture. He, he would do it again after his resurrection. Two of his disciples. Now it's going to be a little while since we till we get to Luke twenty four. So I can go ahead and reference this now. You'll forget about it, and we'll because this is one of those. 70% things, you know, we'll, we'll come to it in a few months. Luke 24. He, he says to these, to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, O foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It, Jesus isn't being insulted. I don't want you to hear that. They're, they're uneducated. They're, they're, they don't have the knowledge they need. They're ignorant to the truth, the slow to believe all that he's been saying. And all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? Listen, this question is important. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and, and all the prophets. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. You know what the books of the Bible Moses wrote? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And some people think that he didn't finish Deuteronomy, and there's, we, you can talk about that later. But realistically, he started at Genesis, right? Starts at Genesis and, and, and ends at the, at the prophets. The whole of the New Testament, Jesus goes back and he shows these two disciples who were slow to believe, who didn't have the information. He, he interprets them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We avoid the Old Testament because we're scared, but we've got this idea that there's some other God working some other plan. The plan is the same. And when we look at the breadth of Scripture, they have always been pointing us to Jesus. Always been pointing us to Jesus. And so he comes and he says to his disciples, listen, this is about to be fulfilled. The thing that I told you had to happen before my kingdom would be established has to be fulfilled, is about to be fulfilled. And he references the prophets, and he begins to make prophetic statement of his own, and he says, I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. You see it in verse 30, I think it's verse 32. He says, for he will be delivered, talking about the Son of Man, talking about himself, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. And that is exactly what's going to happen. We fast forward to Luke chapter 23, verse 1. It says the whole company of them arose. That's the Jewish uh, uh, council. That's the ones who were trying Jesus in the Jewish council. The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, brought Jesus to Pilate. The reality is, is that they couldn't convict him based on the testimony that was given. They couldn't stone him to death themselves. They didn't have authority to do what they wanted to do. They wanted Pilate to do it for them. So they hand them over. Exactly what he said would happen, happens. And he continues. He doesn't stop at being handed over. He continues and he, and he begins to speak of things that have been prophesied in the Old Testament about the Messiah. In fact, there's, there's, it's been counted. I've never counted them all. I don't know if the number's accurate. I've seen numbers like over 300, 365. You want to go count them all, that's up to you. Uh, if you feel like you have to have that number I, I'd commend you to it. I think it's a worthwhile study. I don't know the exact number, but let's just say there's 300 plus prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus and his role as the Messiah. Obviously, you don't want to sit here as we go through all of those. Probably not. You probably want to go to lunch today. But just imagine there's 300 of them. We won't hit them all, but let's just, let's just walk through the ones that he mentions. I mean, if he just does one or two or three of these, that's pretty amazing that hundreds and thousands of years before he walked the face of the earth, and people are saying these things about the, the, the Messiah, about the Son of Man, and he's going to walk in them, and they're going to be fulfilled with him. That's pretty astonishing. But the fact that he finished all 300 or 300 plus, well, that's amazing. He was mocked, it says, again, in verse 32. He will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked. 
We go to Psalm 22, 8. Now, Psalm 22 is a, man, it is a beautiful, over and over and over. It's a beautiful psalm, and over and over throughout it, you see prophecy after prophecy, trait after trait. There's just so much gospel truth there. Jesus is on display. Psalm 22, 8 says, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord rescue him. For he delights in the Lord. And then here's Jesus. It's fulfilled in Matthew 27, 41 through 43. It's going to happen. All the things that the prophets wrote will be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Jesus hanging on the cross. And it says, so all the chief priests with scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. They're mocking him. They're making fun of him. They're making light of the things that he taught. And listen to what they, they, they themselves quote Psalm 22, 8 in reference to Jesus. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If, if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. It's a direct fulfillment, a direct reference to the fact that this is what was expected of the Messiah, and here he is now fulfilling this. Jesus didn't make this happen. He's hanging on the cross, and his people just fulfilling, just walking in the truth that would, be, would come to be. And not, not only is he mocked, he's treated shamefully. It says he's going to be mocked and treated shamefully, and, and we see it happen. Over and over, we see these kind of things happen. But, but let's look at Isaiah 53, where it's prophesied that he's going to be treated shamefully. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He's not being treated with the dignity and respect that he deserves. He's not, he's not the, the, the rich ruler had walked up to him and said, good teacher. And when they bring him into, into Jerusalem, they're going to be screaming at him. He's a blasphemer. They're going to be calling for his crucifixion. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep before its shears are silent. So he opened not his mouth. He is treated with derision. He is, he, is, he is rejected. He is not treated with the dignity or respect he deserves. And we see it fulfilled in Matthew 27. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Again, here, here's this prophecy being unfolded in front of us. All the time being rejected, being accused, being lied about, being falsely accused. He doesn't defend himself in any way. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Do you not hear all the lies that you're saying? Are you not going to defend yourself? Are you, are you not going to in some way stand up for yourself? Could, could these possibly be true of you? Do you not hear what they're saying? He gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. And Jesus was shamefully treated. And he gets really specific because the very next thing is he says he's going to be shamefully treated. Look at it again, verse 32. He's going to be shamefully treated and spit upon. Now, I, I don't know how other cultures would receive this, but I suspect it's a universal sign of disrespect, right? Like, I don't, if, if you ever been spit on in the face, like literally like, you know, I don't want to be gross about it, but, but realistically, this is not like a raspberry where a kid's playing around. This is like coughing it up and spitting it out, right? Has, has that ever happened to you? If it has, did you receive that? Did it, did it feel good? This, this, I, think, I think we could say that there's probably not a culture in the world who walks around spitting on one another unless they're disrespecting one another. And there may be one or two out there, but, but I think realistically this is where we're at. Jesus says they're going to spit on me. And that was prophesied. This level of shameful treatment was prophesied. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He knew this was coming. He knew this level of derision, this level of just frustration, and just hatred towards him was coming. And we see it fulfilled. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 30, they spit on him. They took the reed and they struck him on the head. 
And Jesus says that he's going to be flogged. Now, I don't know if you know what that looks like. The stories are horrendous. If you've ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you've been given what I think is probably a decent glimpse of it. The stories are horrendous. The, 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 the whip that was used, multiple strands, inside of each of the strands was, was bone and metal just tied into it. And the, and the, uh, and the person bringing the, the, the whip, doing the whipping, they say they were trained in this. 39 times. Across the back. They said that there was times where the, and, and, and realistically, these things I've read, I, I obviously was never there for, for a real one, but they said that the, the, the whip would reach around the front and it would catch, and when they would pull it, it would rip open stomach so that the insides would fall out to the outside. That there's a number of times where people died during the flogging. They didn't even reach the crucifixion, but they were seeking to bring so much humiliation to the criminal. They were seeking to, to, to belittle them, to humiliate them in the most serious of ways. Jesus knows this is coming. And Isaiah 53 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The word wounds, depending on which translation, it says easily translated as scourged. The scourging, on his scourging, we are healed. His flogging, we are healed. We see it fulfilled in Matthew 27, 26. He says, then he released from them, or for them Barabbas. Pilate is standing before the crowd, and he says, who do you want? Do you want the criminal, or do you want Jesus? And the crowd says, give us Barabbas. Give us the criminal. You keep Jesus. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then the very next thing is just this little line. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And I'm thankful that we don't get the the explanation. I'm thankful that we don't have to, every time we read this passage, stop and think, oh my gosh, what did he suffer? But he knew it was coming. He knew it had been prophesied and he knew that it was about to be fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize, we need to own this. We need to to see if we are going to be saved, how can we be saved? How is it possible that God would save a vile sinner like me? How would he save a rich ruler? How is it possible that anyone can be saved? We can be saved because Jesus has always been. He's always been and always will be God's only plan for salvation. He is the only way. There is no secondary way. There's no way for us to make up. There's no inventive, creative process that we can go through. This is God's plan. His name is Jesus. When Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Speaking of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus was always known. Before God said, let there be light, Jesus said, I will go. Before God said, uh, God, God spoke and brought the waters into one place and, and brought the land up and created the birds and the fish that filled the, the sky and the, and the waters and created the animals that filled the land. And before he breathed life into the man and to the woman, Jesus knew he was on his way. He always was coming before the foundation of the world. When Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him, Even as he, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Brothers and sisters, there is no election if this is not true that God was going to always bring Jesus. There's no no choosing before the foundation of the world if Jesus wasn't always 
coming. This is the story that God has always been telling. He didn't come, with it, uh, come up with it on the fly. He didn't do it out of some knee-jerk reaction. This is the story he has always been telling. Jesus is the head crusher that will defeat the serpent in Genesis. Jesus is the prophet that was promised to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus is the new and better Jonah that would bring the gospel beyond the people of Israel who wouldn't reside in, who just wouldn't simply reside in the belly of a well in the depths of the sea. He would reside in death in the depths of the earth for three days and on the third day come back to life. Jesus is the new and better Hosea whose bride would be adulterous, but he would love her still. Jesus is the great king, is the greater King David, promised to be born in the line of David and establish that kingdom forever. This is who Jesus is. The story has always been about him and the people he would save. He is the fulfillment of all the prophets wrote. He is the promised Messiah. How can we be saved? Because Jesus has always been and will always be God's only plan. You know what that means for you and for me? We don't have to figure out a new way. We can rest in the way that God has been proclaiming since the very day that he said, let there be light. We can, be, we can rest in the truth that God has always been working to this place where his son would come, where his son would live a perfect life, where his son would die a sacrificial death, and his son would rise in victory to establish his kingdom for all eternity. We can be saved because Jesus has always been and always will be God's only plan for salvation. This is our truth. And so we can put down the notion that somehow we're supposed to make it on our own. We don't have to live in accordance with the law. We live in accordance with the truth of the gospel. That our Savior has come. And because he's come, we get to walk in obedience there's no need to come up with any other plan. God has always had it. But now, look, we didn't even get to the last piece of what he said, right? He says that he will be killed. And no, 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 realistically, we could go back and we could look at all the prophets and we could see him dying. I mean, just as an example, it says in Isaiah that he's going to be pierced. There's a couple of different places in the Old Testament where it talks about him being pierced. But the reality is the Jews didn't kill people that way. They didn't kill by piercing. They weren't stabbing people. They would stone them. They would bludgeon them with stones. Thousands or hundreds of years before it even is a thought in people's minds that the prophets are prophesying Jesus being pierced by, by these nails, that, that, that he's going to be nailed to a cross, that he's going to be nailed to a tree, that, that through his hands and through his feet there's going to be these piercings. This is God at work seeking to, to satisfy, seeking to, to bring his wrath to bear. So Jesus knows as he's coming that he's not simply coming to, to teach and heal and then go up to heaven. He's coming to die. It says it in verse 33, after flogging him, they will kill him. He will die. He's not just going to faint you're not just going to pass out for a little while. He is going to die. Why is it so necessary? We, we, hear it in, we heard it in Luke as, as he talked to the, the, do you not know that it's necessary? It was necessary for this to happen. Jesus is the suffering Savior. Why did he have to be the suffering Savior? But Jesus suffered and died to preserve the holiness of God. Listen, before he died for you and for me, he died for his father. Now, I know that's like shocking, right? Like, uh, why? Why would it be so necessary? Romans 3, 21 through 26 alludes to this. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Remember, they were bearing witness to the Christ, right? The righteousness of God being revealed. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, let's just stop right there. So there's this reality that everyone has sinned. Everyone is evil. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. The rich rulers, the vile sinners, the tax collectors, the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low, the best of the best that we have to offer, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. We're all the same. And there's only one way to be saved. That's through as a gift of grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. It's a satisfaction. It's a, it's a way that he offers mercy and, 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 and actually at the same time provides justice to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Listen, don't miss this. This was to, God, to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Let's just stop and think about this. Let's deal with this. Had God, he tells Adam and Eve, let's just go all the way back to the garden. He tells Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. Spiritually, in, in, in a physical sense, they, they die spiritually. They're physically separated from God. They're sent out of the garden, but they kept breathing. Right? And God didn't abandon them. He actually killed an animal. He covered them with the, 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 the skin of the animal. And he sends them away. And in the process, he says, look, there's going to be one who comes who crushes the head of the serpent. At the very beginning, he makes that promise. If he had conti just continuing in interaction with Adam and Eve, had he not already had a plan, he himself would be a liar. Because he said they were going to die. Well, how could he interact with sinners and remain holy? How could he remain righteous? Well, it's not that he just dealt with Adam and Eve, is it? It's not that he's, he, he dealt with a whole lot of sinners. Like, he dealt with a whole lot of sin. He dealt with a whole lot of re rebellious people. He entered into agreements with them. He made promises to them and gave them expectations to live by to, to carry their side of the covenant. He lived in relationship with them. He spoke to the prophets. He, he interacted with Abram. Abram was a, a pagan when he said, hey, come follow me. I'll go to a land that I'm going to show you. Abram had never really even thought about God. But here God is in his divine forbearance overlooking sin, knowing that the cross is coming. If he had done this and Jesus wasn't there, if Jesus wasn't part of the plan and hadn't always been part of the plan, God himself would be a liar. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, so that he might be righteous so that he might not lose his perfection, so that he might not step out of his holiness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen, this practically, if Jesus had not died, you could not be forgiven. It's just that simple. The only way you could be forgiven is if God denied, without Jesus, let's take Jesus out of the equation God could not forgive you without him. You could not be justified. You couldn't be called righteous. You could not be justified if Christ hadn't died as a substitute for you. But because he did, God, the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, because Jesus paid this price, because he took on this sacrifice, God offers forgiveness freely to those who would believe, who would trust in Jesus Christ. He's able to give it as a gift, for, and we're able to receive it by faith because Jesus died. But he didn't just die for the Father. He did. He did die for God, but he also died for us. He died to take our debt of sin. 
We see this, Paul writing in, in, in the, to the church in Corinth. He says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. He never did anything that he shouldn't do. He always did the things he should do. He never had a mixed motive. He never had a, a, a desire that was out, out of, out of uh, character for God. He never had a thought that was evil or, or, or um, uh, sinful in any way. He never sinned, and yet... In the cross, there's this eternal transaction that takes place that all the sins of his people from the past and all the sins of his people from the future, he draws them into this place and in this time and moment on the cross where he takes them and he brings them into himself and nails them and, and has them nailed alongside him to the tree. He who knew no sin became sin. He who never sinned died as a sinner. He took on our sin. In some way, I, I, it, it's, it's massive and, and bigger than probably you and I can fully comprehend, but there's this eternal transaction between him and the Father where he cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Where there's some distance developed, some, some, some division driven, so that he could take our sin and put it to death and, and take God's wrath in our place. But it doesn't end there. It's only half of the verse. It's only half of the transaction. Jesus suffered and died to take from us our sin debt, but Jesus also suffered and died to give us his righteousness. This is oftentimes called the great exchange. He took what was ours so that he could give us what was his. He took what we couldn't get rid of to give us what we couldn't gain. He never sinned. His desires were always perfect. His motives were always pure. His, he, he, he always did what he was supposed to do, never did what he wasn't supposed to do. When have you done that? When's the last time you had a pure motive? When's the last time that your desires didn't, didn't uh, betray the fact that you don't desire the Lord first? I don't know if exactly, there's a lot of negatives in that sentence, but you, I, think, I think you get what I'm asking. When was the last time your desire was for God's glory above everything else? Regardless of the cost to you. When was the last time that your thoughts were always, only, ever pure? He gave to us what we couldn't gain. And he took from us what we couldn't get rid of. He exchanged our sin for his righteousness. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Our best is never going to be good enough. But he died so that we could be made good enough. We can be saved. How can anyone be saved? We can be saved because Jesus served as our substitute in death so that we could stand with him in life. We, we can be saved. We can step into eternity. We can walk into the throne room of God. We can stand in his presence and not be burnt up because Jesus took his wrath, because Jesus took our sin, and he stood in our place, and he said, I'm guilty, but they're not. It's like, it's like we're all fighting with this ongoing credit card debt. We're making that minimum payment every month. Oh, man, I'll just keep making that minimum payment. One day, one day I'll pay off this card. The problem is interest builds. And that debt just continues to grow. And the worst part of it is, is our sin nature just continues to pile upon that debt. It's not just, it's not just the interest. It's the ongoing purchases of sin because our flesh desires things other than God. Our flesh is mixed with its motives. And Jesus steps in and he pays that debt in full. He says, you are debt free. You are free. You, you don't have any debt any longer. When the Father sees you, he doesn't see your debt. He sees my payment. We can be saved because Jesus stood in for us, because Jesus paid the debt for us. And finally, he says, he will not only die, but he will rise. Can't leave him in the grave, right? 
The truth is, if he's left in the grave, there's not really a lot to celebrate. Jesus is the victorious king. That's exactly what he's telling us is going to happen. On the third day, he will rise. Jesus suffered and died to prepare for his resurrection and ours. He died so that he could rise. He died so that he could put death to death, so that he could end the power of death. He died so that we could live. He died so that he could prepare not only for his own resurrection and be the first fruits, but so that we could be ones that follow him in faith. The reality is that that apart from the resurrection, apart from the death and the resurrection, there is no salvation. And Paul gets at this in 1 Corinthians 15, writing to the church in Corinth as they're struggling through this. He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus is dead in the ground and we can go dig up his body, we don't have any hope. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They have been done for. There is no hope for them either. If if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied like we not only do we not have hope but people should look at us and feel bad for us because we believe we do have hope if christ is still dead but he goes on and making this point he goes on in first corinthians 15 50 through 56 he says i tell you this brothers Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must, be, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then they shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus is alive, there will come a day where we will rise, and we will stand in his presence in our bodies and see him with our own eyes, touch him with our own hands, and walk beside him with our own feet. Brothers and sisters, we have hope because Jesus is our victorious king who died and rose on the third day just As the prophets have always been saying he would do. How can anyone be saved? We can be saved because King Jesus is not dead. But he is alive. So, who are you going to trust? A story that's been being told by a sovereign God since before the foundation of the world? Or something you can come up with that sounds really creative and special? I can be good enough. I can do enough. You see, they all devolve to that place at some point. Let let me just encourage you. Don't believe that. There is no hope in any other plan but the one that God has always had. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for in your great and powerful plan. You have-